Matthew 17. Let's start in verse 1. It says, And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, why then say the scribes that Elias must come first? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. And we'll stop there. Now, it was a couple weeks ago we were finishing up Matthew 16 and read this the passage right to the end of the chapter and I said I wasn't going to comment on the last verse as it applied more to chapter 17 than it does to chapter 16. So this last statement of Jesus says, Verily, I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This verse from what I've seen, has caused a lot of division in end times doctrines in, within the church. Because it makes this statement, there's some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so there's an interpretation of that, that the fulfillment of all this prophecy of the end times is going to be fulfilled before some of these guys die. But if we read the next few verses, we start to see that it has been fulfilled what he said, not the completion of it, but the seeing of it is fulfilled in what we just read this morning in chapter 17. And if we... Uh, I, I've listened and tried to understand all the various 
end times views of, of how things might play out. And there is only one that I can see where I don't have to dismiss some other part of scripture in order for it to fit. Um, and so if you disagree, that's fine. Maybe you can enlighten me on how it fits more, but um, the only end times timeline that I can see that fits all of scripture is that there is coming a seven-year tribulation, but before that tribulation, I see the church is taken away in what we call the rapture, and then there's that seven-year period. And at the end of that seven-year period is the actual second coming when Christ returns to rule and to reign and followed by a thousand-year reign where he is ruling over this earth and then a final battle where Satan is he's put in prison for that thousand years and then released at the end of that thousand years and a final battle and a final judgment and then a new heaven and a new earth created beginning eternity. That's the only timeline that I can see that fits all of scripture and some scripture doesn't show all of that timeline but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist so let's look at some of this this morning um, and how I see that that fits together and hopefully it'll make sense by the time I'm done here when we look at the transfiguration this image or this thing that took place on this mountain, you can actually see all the different elements of that future kingdom um, being pictured in the various aspects of it. So I'm going to look just first before we get too far at Second Peter uh, chapter 1. Second Peter 1 and just a reminder of the, those that went up with Jesus. There was only three of them, and it's Peter, James, and John. And so now Peter is writing. In Second Peter 1, verse 15, he says, Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, while we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice came from heaven this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. And so this is Peter going back and describing what we just read in Matthew and the transfiguration of Christ on that mountain. I'm going to read just the last of the chapter here before we keep going, partly unrelated but partly related. It says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, where undo whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts knowing this first 
that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And really what Peter is saying here is that the scriptures that are written down, the Bible that we have in our hands, is more trustworthy than what he saw when he was on the mountain. <laughs> he, he was there, he saw it with his own eyes, he heard God's voice with his own ears. But he says, the scripture is even more reliable than what I saw and heard on that mountain. But I think it's important for us to realize Peter is of those ones where Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And he makes the point here in verse 15, Moreover, I endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. He's still pointing to a forward coming kingdom as he's anticipating his own death. He's not worried that what Jesus said about them seeing that kingdom before they died not coming to fruition because he did see it. And he's pointing to that. He's pointing back to when he saw that when he was up on that mountain. And so Jesus saying that they'll not taste the death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom isn't a statement that the end is here and I'm going to set up that kingdom before you guys' lives are over. It's a, I'm going to show it to you. You're going to get a chance to see my glory. And so they got that sneak preview of that future event. I never know how much to read into certain things in scripture. Um, I come from a background where there was a lot of reading into things. But I find it interesting Verse 1 of chapter 17 says, After six days, Jesus takes them. And we're looking at the revealing of the kingdom after six days. And I'm thinking again of Second Peter chapter 1, where he's talking about Scripture being more reliable. We can trust that Scripture. And I can believe... When I open my Bible to Genesis chapter 1 and I read the creation account, I can believe that creation was created in six days. I can believe all these details that are laid out in the time frames that are given. And if I go through my Bible, which I personally haven't done, I'm just trusting that the people that have done it did it right. But we go back, I can go back about 4,000 years from now looking at our timelines and the genealogies, and I can see that Noah was about 4,000 years ago. And I can look around the world, and I can see fossils in high up places on mountains, and I can see craters and valleys and geography that makes no sense in our world that our current scientists are claiming took millions of years to create. And yet, a flood, as described in Genesis regarding Noah, would account for all of those things, no problem. I can trust my Bible as being true and right, and it fits 
with the history of the world. And so I can go back another 2,000 years of genealogies that are given in the Bible, and I see that that is when Adam and Eve were in the garden. And there's a 6,000-year period of life on this earth. And without going to the passages that say a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day with the Lord, we can almost come to the conclusion of creation took six days and perhaps the time frame of God working on this earth is another six days of thousand year periods. And like I said, I, I hate reading too much into where it says then six days. <laughs> but I see connections there. I see Jesus made similar connections. I never thought to, to look up the, the spot, but when Jesus is talking with some of the Pharisees one time, he points to scripture and he says, the scripture says God is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And he says, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. It was the tense of that I am as opposed to I was that Jesus pointed to as giving a truth in scripture, something as simple as am versus was in this thing. Jesus points out as being a truth that we can learn. And so there's no mistakes, there's no accidental, coincidental things in scripture. I think we just have to be careful how much digging and how much um, clarity we think we have in some of these things, because we probably don't have as much as we think we do. I speak for myself in any case. But moving on from that, he takes these three men up into a high mountain apart and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with them. First, I see here in this picture of the coming kingdom is Jesus in his glorified state. He was transfigured before them and his face shines as the sun and his raiment is white as the light. If we go into Revelation and look at Christ's coming. <laughs> we see this description of this white raiment, right? We see him shining so that we can't even look on him. This is, this is the glorified, the resurrected Christ that we're seeing in this description. As opposed to while he was on earth, he was in his humbled state. He was getting, he was preparing for his humiliation. Philippians 2.8 talks about that he humbled himself even to the point of the death on the cross. He took the worst death you could come up with and he accepted that willingly. He gave himself to, to receive that for us. And so there's that contrast that future picture of his glorified state, which we'll see when he's in his kingdom. The second picture in here is Moses. 
verse 3 says, And behold, there appeared unto him Moses and Elijah. And Moses, if you look back in the Old Testament passages, we see Moses as this leader who God chose to redeem his people, to free them from Egypt. And through Moses, the law was given. Through Moses, we have multiple pictures of Christ. Um, we point out the one with when the serpents were killing the people and he lifts up the brass serpent. And Jesus points to that as a picture of that was pointing to him and on the cross. And we have these various pictures of these things and all that God did through Moses. But Moses died. And so Moses is a picture of all the saints who have died prior to entering God's kingdom. Jacob this morning was pointing at... Um, Second uh, Peter three, I think it was, where it points to uh, where he preached to the saints that were in prison, and we see this picture of there was this captivity of all the Old Testament saints in the heart of the earth being held there because the payment for their sins hadn't been given yet until Christ came and was crucified, and so he had to then go and preach that message to them that your sins are paid for because I took them. I paid the price. I was that sacrifice. And he clarified to them that he was that lamb that they sacrificed on a yearly basis was a picture of him. And so he preached that message to them and then was able to then take them into God's presence in heaven. Um, First Thessalonians chapter 4, we see another um, example of saints that have, have died and what happens with them at this coming of God's kingdom. First Thessalonians 4 verse 16. It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And so those of us who die in this world trusting in Christ as our Savior, we don't get our resurrected body right away. <laughs> our spirit goes to be with the Lord, but we don't get that new body yet. We get that new body at that point, when he comes back and calls his church. Amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> the third thing, the third picture in that passage in Matthew would be Elijah. And Elijah would be a picture of the raptured church. A church that's caught up, translated change into the glorified state without dying first. 
the same passage in 1 Thessalonians contains obviously much more than what the one verse that I read, starting in verse 13. It says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Those who are alive and remain are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. There's a picture of a rapture, of a changing of the church, of bringing a catching away of the church. 1 Corinthians 15 gives a very similar description. I'll just look at that briefly. Right at the end of the chapter in verse 50. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Our physical body that we're living in right now cannot enter into God's presence because it is corrupt. It has to be changed. Verse 51 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. And it's a mystery. It's not well shown in the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is thy sting O grave where is thy victory the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is law but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ and it is through faith in him that we get that victory, we get that hope. I see, and this, this idea of the church being caught away and escaping the tribulation is maybe probably the most controversial part of this end times theology is what people seem to have the hardest time with of when does this take place? Because we can see aspects of it taking place at the end of the tribulation as well. As we see in the end of Revelation, we see some of this change and some of this resurrection taking place at the end of 
the tribulation. And so many people criticize the, the view of a pre-tribulation rapture. But there's a few things that really make it hard to not put it before the tribulation. And one of those things is just simply looking at Daniel chapter 9, um, the weeks of the 70, 70 weeks of prophecy. I'm not going to turn to it. It takes weeks of study to go through <laughs> that prophecy, but it lays out much of what takes place through history. And this 70 weeks and each week is, is a seven-year period. So it's this 490-year period. And it gives a starting date, very specific, of uh, the command to rebuild Jerusalem. And we see in Scripture, in Nehemiah, that command go forth. And we can go through our history books and we can figure out almost exactly when that happened. And so we have a starting point. And this is where I say, the Pharisees had no excuse to not expect the Messiah to come exactly when Jesus came. Because he came right on time, according to that prophecy. But the interesting thing is that last seven-year period, that final week of that prophecy, hasn't been fulfilled. And you can look at various aspects of it and very clearly see that it has not yet been fulfilled. And you, if you think otherwise, you, you basically have to dismiss much of what the Bible says and allegorize the things that the Bible says. And so being unwilling to do that, I have to look at it and say, nope, this hasn't happened yet. This is yet to come because I am not in a world where God reigns and sin is no more. So that tribulation period can't have happened yet. Jesus teaches in Matthew 24 that that seven-year period is yet to come and that his second coming is at the end of that seven-year period. When we go to Revelation and we see the whole book of Revelation is basically a picture of that seven-year period. There's descriptions of all the different aspects of it throughout the book. And at the end, the final chapters, we see these final events taking place. And one of those events, in chapter 19, verse 7 says, Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his, his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet and worship, to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant. And of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
The detail in there, though, that we need to understand is that the New Testament describes the church as the bride of Christ. And we have here the marriage taking place in heaven right before, in the next verse, it says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Obviously, this is Jesus. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth forth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we see, here's a picture of the second coming, of Jesus actually returning to earth to fulfill the prophecies that all the disciples and all the Pharisees and all those people that were looking at Jesus at the time trying to understand him because they thought this is what it was supposed to look like the first time around. They thought he was going to come and to conquer right away, but they missed the, the first part where he had to come as a sacrifice, as a payment for sin first. This is what they're looking for. This is that conquering. But how does his bride get married to him prior to that second coming if we're still here on earth in the tribulation? It can't. The, the timing and the order of events simply doesn't line up when you look at all these things. So there's a one aspect of it. A second aspect of that um, I'm sure, yep, there it is. <laughs> Second Thessalonians. Gives a detail here. Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, and we read that passage in chapter 4, where he's giving this picture of the rapture, of this catching away of the church. And it seems like those in Thessalonica didn't understand the timing of this. And they seemed to be worried that this had already taken place, that, that they missed something. And so he's given them some reassurance. Before I get into 2 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5.9 makes this statement. It says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not appointed to wrath. And then, when we get into chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, starting in verse 3, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come away first, that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, 
for all that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And this is where we see, you can see there's some concern that they have that something had taken place and they missed it. And he's reassuring them in this. In verse 6 he says, And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. He says, You know what withholdeth. <laughs> For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And the word let is just a, a word of restraint. And basically it's pointing to the Holy Spirit as restraining evil in our world. And he does that through indwelling Christians. And when it says it's going to be taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. And so we see he's talking about this Antichrist, the Antichrist that we see again in Revelation at the, particularly at the midpoint of the, of the tribulation with that mark of the beast that is a very common topic these days. But we see that the thing that restrains evil in this world right now is going to be taken out of the way and that wicked will then be revealed. The church is, a, is what is restraining evil in this world and I have to say, we're not doing that good of a job of it these days. <laughs> Which kind of makes you think that this time may be getting close. So finally, I'm going to end with this last part, is that Peter, James, and John in this picture... are not glorified. They're not in a glorified state here. They are in a natural human state. During that kingdom period, I'm going to turn to Ezekiel 37. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 37, verse 21. It says, And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, 
nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of all their dwelling places, wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them, so they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they all shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them, and yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We see the nation of Israel is going to be an ongoing people through this kingdom period, this thousand-year reign of Christ is what we're seeing pictured here. I'm going to look at one other passage that speaks of this. It's in Isaiah chapter 11. The early part of it is giving this description Verse 6 says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. Like, this is a perfect world <laughs> where, where evil no longer exists. The cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the, at, the, like the ox. People have a tendency to point that, oh, we're supposed to be vegetarians. Well, we may be in the future, but that's not what this is saying. It's just saying that the dangers of our world are gone. The, the results of sin are going to be removed at this point. If we carry on, though, it says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Pointing to Christ here. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. His people are going to be gathered together. I don't know if it had exactly the... I've looked at so much stuff coming here. But there's a passage similar to this that speaks of a child shall die at 100 years old. <laughs> It's, but it's a child. It's, a, it's ongoing of humanity, right? There's a reproduction, there's marriage, there's children. 
but there's this longevity of life that's included. And this is just aspects of that thousand-year reign where Satan is bound for that thousand years. Christ's rule <laughs> reigns. He prevents sin. So there's people going to be in that kingdom in the flesh, is really the point that I'm making here. There will be people in the flesh not glorified yet at that point. But at the end, at the end, there is a final judgment, a final cleaning up of everything. The end of that thousand years ends in a battle where Satan's released. He's allowed to go and deceive the world, and he's going to gather an army. And people are going to be deceived, even after spending that time with Christ ruling. And they're going to fight against God. And they're going to lose. <laughs> and God is going to give that eternal judgment and create that new heaven and the new earth where all of that is done away with. There will be no more death, no more crying, no more sadness. All those things are going to be done away with. And so this event that took place on this mountain, this transfiguration of Jesus, very much is a fulfillment of what Jesus said in the previous verse in chapter 16, that there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. When they saw these events, these people in this state, this glorified state, themselves still being in a fleshly state, actually did see the kingdom. They saw a glimpse of what the future was going to behold. I'll just quote a couple of verses to close. One of the final verses in Thessalonians 4 says, Wherefore comfort one another with these words. And Titus says, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our hope. We get this resurrected body that it's not over in this life. As a missionary <laughs> taken captive in Haiti, my life could be on the line. And ours may be one of these days too, guys. But that's not the end. If my life is taken, I get put in a better place. <laughs> right? That's the hope that we have. That's the future that we have. We need to share that with as many people as we can share that with. Glad you preach on that, Pastor. I like that. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, again, I thank you for this passage, for the examples in Scripture, for the pictures throughout Scripture that point us to what you're going to do in the future, Lord. Um, I've done my best to present it as accurately as I can, as faithful to your word as I can, Lord. And I just pray that we are faithful in what you've given us to do, Lord. Lord, help us to look to you for that hope and help us to point others to the hope that we have. Again, we commit this to you, Lord, and thank you for the time. In Christ's name, amen. amen.